Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Alex Smith, the Director of Sales for Stonemeyer Games and co-designer of Red Rising, along with a man, the myth, the legend himself, Jamie Stegmeyer, founder of Stonemeyer Games and also co-designer of Red Rising. Gentlemen, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Hey, good. And how about you? <laughs> doing fantastic. Doing fantastic. Glad to have you guys here. Uh, for people who um, follow the podcast, if you go back to, I believe it was episode 28, that was in September, was the last time we had Jamie on our podcast. If you want to check that out, you can get the whole backstory of Jamie, hear a little bit more about Stonemeyer Games, have some of the questions we asked, some of the wisdom he shared. And today we're going to talk with uh, his sales director and kind of learn a little bit more about Alex. And then we're going to jump into their new game, Red Rising. So Alex, you and I, this is the first time you and I have actually met. Uh, yes. I thought you could tell us a little bit about how did you get into this industry uh, as a whole? Yeah. So in about 2015, 2016, um, I started uh, doing some hobby game design. Um, I had been a gamer my entire life. Um, but uh, 2015, 2016, I got into hobby game design. And in the fall of 2016, I actually went to uh, Jamie's design day. Uh, where I, I met Jamie. I started to meet other people in the industry. Uh, that same year, I volunteered at Gen Con with uh, Greater Than Games. And about a year later, uh, just as I made friends with Jamie and uh, started going to his game night, and then also made friends with the people at Greater Than Games, uh, there became an opportunity. Uh, Charterstone was uh, shipping to the US, and Greater Than Games had both of their... Uh, warehouse manager uh, gets sick and their forklift break the week <laughs> the containers were arriving. And so at that, that very moment, they just needed labor. They needed someone who could help take games out of containers so that they could actually go to everyone. And yeah. so they, they knew that I, I was working a part-time job at the time. And so uh, basically Paul at Gridman Games called me up and said, hey, can you help out maybe starting next week? And I was like, yeah. And then Jamie, uh, I think Jamie actually sent out a, it put a blog post up about uh, needing help essentially. And so I was like, well, why don't I just start now? And uh, from, from there, I, I started working at Greater Than Games. I became a Stonemeyer's account manager there. So I was the liaison between Greater Than Games and Stonemeyer Games. Greater Than Games does warehousing and fulfillment for Stonemeyer. So is it um, just just for people that don't know? So greater than games, are yeah. they, do they do uh, warehousing for many game companies? Just Stonemaier? What's how's that relationship work? Um, at the time, it was just Stonemaier. At this point, they do it for many game companies. Um, uh, Deepwater Games uh, does they do warehousing for Deepwater Games and a number of smaller companies as well. Um, but but yeah, from there, uh, like I was working closely with Jamie. I was working with Greater Than Games, and then uh, last summer, um, Jamie was looking at where everything was going and, and how Stonemeyer was growing. Um, and he had taken a uh, Joe on board, who's our other coworker. And it came to the conclusion that it made sense to bring sales in-house. Uh, previously, Greater Than Games had been doing uh, sales facilitation for Stonemeyer. So uh, oh, all okay. of the, the working with distributors and um, like we were, Stonemeyer was making all of our own games, selling on our own web store. Uh, but like all of the relationships with distributors and uh, larger retailers was happening through Greater Than Games. And so since I already knew both companies, it kind of made sense for me to just sort of swap sides. Um, 
I think James, we actually talked before the podcast that it, it was it was a friendly it was a friendly swap. I'm still friends with everyone at Graven Games. They still do f- fulfillment for us. We like them. They like us. Uh, so we won't but use just... the word poach at all here, right, Damien? <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I definitely I reached out to Greater Than Games. Paul and Paul and I talk all the time at Greater yeah. Than Games just to make sure it would be mutually beneficial because uh, mm-hmm. I they're they're integral to our success and I think yeah. we're we're good for them too. So I wanted it to be. A, Good for both of us. So it wasn't one of those, uh, I hope you don't mind us taking your guy now. <laughs> we won't let anything happen to your business if you don't let us take your guy. <laughs> I know it, it's been good for them. Uh, it's, yeah. led, it's let their sales team focus on the other games that they're selling and they're still benefiting from us warehousing with them, which is, is plenty of product moving in and out. So it's, it really is a win-win. I think a surprise, what surprises me uh, like I know obviously now, but I think this surprised probably a lot of people of how much of your company, Jamie, up until just very recently has been you, right? Like, like you've kind of outsourced stuff, right? And you've kind of been the main hub, like the project manager essentially of your own company, but for the size and the number of games and, and the, the amount of um, titles you've put out, I think most people probably would have assumed there was a huge team uh, behind that. And uh, that's not the case, right? This has been kind of you, you know, kind of like a one-man show, I guess, or I guess a two-person show in, in many cases, but now you're starting to kind of build a team up, bring more things in-house. What led to the decision to wait so long to do that? Uh, well, yeah, you know, I want to echo what you just said. I think project manager is the, the best term for yeah. it because while I, 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 I have some skills, there are many skills that I don't have, accounting, graphic design, tax, I don't like dealing with taxes, law, uh, shipping. So I, like you said, I outsource so many things to other companies, independent contractors, but I was the hub for all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, in early 2020, I, that's when I brought on Joe as our director of communications, because I'm pulled in a lot of different directions every day. I have been for years, but I kind of reached a good tipping point where it would be helpful to consolidate a lot of things that I was doing and that I was outsourcing to other people into one single person who could do all those things really well internally. And then Alex mentioned how how he came on board as well, which was unexpected. Alex was definitely not planned. I I, I think we could have easily operated for years as just a two-person company, but uh, Alex has been great to have on board as well. Now, Alex, have you always played board games? Has that been a passion of yours your, your whole life? Or is this something you just kind of got into more recently? Or Yeah, it's it's been my entire life. My parents played board games. My my um, my parents actually met at chess club. Okay. Um, and good. and so growing up, um, I was playing games that were older than I was, um, like Civilization, uh, the 1977 version of War of the Ring. Yes, that exists. Um, D&D, first edition. Uh, like my dad was a nerd. Um, my mom was a nerd, so I just grew up in a gaming family. Wow. And then, so is it a natural passion for you, uh, when you got into like the greater than games, is that like, it's almost like a dream to come true and say, now I can actually switch my career to get into an industry that I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Or did you always know that kind of you're, you're headed that way? Um, I definitely didn't always know I was heading that way. My, my college degree is in theater. Mm. Uh, which <laughs> is, is actually useful for, for sales talking sure. to people. Um, yeah. but yeah, I didn't know uh, initially. I kind of I made a conscious decision about it before it happened that, yes, I want to get into this industry. I'm going to get to know people in this industry. I didn't know how I was going to get in or what that would look like. So that's been an exploratory uh, choice path for the last few years. Yeah. Um, but um, so, yeah, no, I didn't know event originally, but when I it was a conscious decision. And in this this role, um, 
how have you found this past year with COVID is how has it impacted kind of what you do on a daily basis? And what are some of the challenges that you've now been faced with as a result of that? Yeah, it's so director of sales can look like a lot of different things for a lot of different companies anyway. Um, And Stonemaier as a a more established company, it was never going to be as much of a role of uh, doing cold calls, trying to get like retailers to, to carry our games. People want to carry our games and I would not be as good at that that job. Um, but because of COVID, uh, the biggest thing has been shipping uh, and we're seeing it now, but I was dealing with that last fall. Um, and freight, and sorry about freight shipping, freight, uh, freight yeah, shipping containers yes. of games, costs, from manufacturing costs costs and delays, shipping. right? Yeah. Yes. Um, especially just, just delays, right? It's, um, it's, it, and it's, you know, manufacturing delays happened very briefly when COVID started, but then it was, it was really starting last summer, last fall, shipping delays, getting stuff from China to everywhere in the world is a lot yeah. harder. Um, and so combine that with the way that, well, Wingspan has, has really taken off in the past uh, couple of years. Um, so we're moving more product and it's more complicated and slower to get at places. And my job has become like a logistics manager. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's figuring out, okay, what are we printing? Where is it going? Managing that with the factory, managing that with all of our distributors who are buying from us, giving them updates when they have questions, letting them know, um, apologizing because I don't know when this container is going to actually arrive. And I'm sorry, I I can't control that. Um, It will happen eventually. Um, I think people might not realize, right, that they think, oh, well, just just put it on a plane. Well, you're not putting a container full of product on a plane, (laughs) Right. Like you can put a couple of cases on a plane. You can maybe get away with half a skid, but you're not, or maybe even a full skid, but even that would be crazy expensive. But I mean, so you're forced to go by a boat, right? And when you're forced to go by a boat and you're going by the container load, I'm sure multiple containers, not just one, because it's a stone mire we're talking about. Um, you know, that, that becomes a much bigger ball of wax on the logistical side. How many different touch points do you guys have in terms of, so when you're, I think your manufacturing is in China, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. So when you go from your, from your manufacturing hub, a lot of companies when they're doing Kickstarters or, or just publishing their games, often they'll have maybe one, maybe three or usually four, I think kind of on the high end of different kind of distribution hubs they would use around the world to help with the distribution of their games. Are, are you guys consolidated like that? Or do you have even more? Have you kind of tried to optimize uh, your network by really putting kind of a, a location in almost you know, each uh, multiple spots in each subcontinent. Yeah. So for, for ourselves, we have uh, just uh, four, I don't even want to call them distribution hubs because most yeah. of them are, they're fulfillment centers. Uh, we, sure. we work yeah. with companies that do uh, fulfillment for our web store, but we're not using them primarily for distributing games to our distribution partners. Um, essentially China is our distribution hub. Uh, mm. The U S uh, greater than games is our secondary distribution hub, but like the main goal is is to ship games directly from China to whatever distributor needs them, yeah. uh, and that's that's going to be probably have about forty to fifty. Uh, most of the, like some of them are getting direct uh, containers, not all of them. And, and when I say forty to fifty, that's including like ACD has uh, three locations, um, Alliance gotcha. has four locations, PhD has five locations. Uh, so those are all different locations. Do you ship to each of the individual locations or do you guys send to like one and then they'll split it off from there kind of a thing? It depends on how much uh, product they want. If yeah. they want full containers at each location, it's cheaper to just ship it straight from China to them. 
That's cool. And for people who are listening, are thinking I'm getting bored at this point. The reason I ask this question is because I think it highlights how complicated this is when number one, you have a high, high volumes of games. You've got issues with delays and distribution around the world. Everybody's talking about now online as well about, you know, expect rates to go up in terms of shipping costs, that tax now issues now in, in, in Europe and in, in the UK, you know, so we're now seeing people pushing VAT taxes now straight to the consumer. So there's been a lot of change, right? This past uh, year that has um, really changed the way I think we've gone about uh, getting games to the market. And I'm sure as a company, a lot of people are, are probably watching you guys, right? Because being leaders, the small guys are saying, okay, you know, what's Stillmeyer doing, right? What are some of the big guys doing and trying to emulate that as best as possible? So that's why it's great to have guys like you on this on this podcast. Let's talk a little bit about Red Rising. So how did you come up with this idea? Was this something that like, I know in one of the intro videos has said this has been five years in the making. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by five years in the making? Did you literally start the design of this game five years ago or yeah, kind of what do you yeah. mean by that? Yeah, I'll start the story and Alex will chime in because he, sure. he came in at a crucial time. The game would not exist without him, but I uh, fell in love with a series of books, this Red Rising trilogy, yeah. uh, starting when the first book came out in 2014 and the next book, I think it was almost a yearly release after that, 2015, 2016. I loved the series of books. And that was around the time that Scythe was really taking off. And so at, at some point in that life cycle, I think it was actually before Scythe that I originally reached out, reached out to the author, Pierce Brown, and I said, you know, I love really? your books. I'm a game designer, I'm a game publisher. I would love to design a game in the Red Rising world. And the response at, at that point wasn't, I mean, it was fine. Pierce, I think sent me a nice response. Maybe it was through his agent. But then I followed up a year later after Scythe came out and we were a lot more visible, a lot more successful at that point and, uh, and talked about it again. And uh, Pierce was more receptive to it at that point. And I think part of it was due to, I think at that point, Red Rising wasn't involved in a film or TV deal. I had just maybe asked at the wrong time based on the, mm -hmm. I, the, the, the rights for the game or for the, for the world. And uh, I started working on it uh, and I, I tried out a bunch of different versions of the game to see if any of them would work. And each time it, it, it just kind of fell flat. I, I wasn't capturing the feeling I get when I read a Red Rising book, which is interesting character-driven decisions that are often painful, but also can lead to moments of success. I'm immersed in this weird society of characters in this Red Rising world, which is a dystopian world set in, in, in a somewhat distant future, in, but it's st still in our solar system. Um, and I, at that point, I, I posted a video on YouTube saying, I think it was actually the, the first long form video I ever did on my channel where I was like, you know, I've been working on this game. I want to talk about it a little bit. I love this book. I've been trying to design this game. I haven't figured it out. I, I'm at the point where I need to give up for a little while. And I invited other designers to submit their game to, to us if they had a Red Rising game that they wanted to submit. We went through a both bunch of those games. I think maybe five total submissions that we actually played where designers worked really hard on them, submitted great stuff to us, but just wasn't a good fit. It still wasn't capturing the world. And then I kind of set the game aside for a while until a fateful game night with uh, with Alex Schmidt. Alex, you're gonna take it over from there a little bit? Yeah, um, because I mean, before this game night, we occasionally would at game night would talk about Red Rising, uh, just sort yeah. of like the, the, the struggles, like especially as Jamie had gone through these various iterations that just weren't working. Um, but one one night at game night, we were playing uh, Fantasy Realms, uh, a filler game. And I was like, well, hey, this game has, I think, 10 suits. Uh, the expansion adds more. But it was like, well, that works. There's only 14 casts in Red Rising. If they can do 10, we can probably do something like this with 14. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Jamie and I started talking about it, and it just made sense. 
Yeah, and I think the way you said that, Allison, because we we had talked about the problems of the previous games of Red Rising quite a bit. The problem was we had we have these fourteen different casts, these fourteen different colors in Red Rising, and it's important. I felt that it was important to represent them in the game, but everything I tried to represent them, like fourteen different colors of meeples, just ends up being too That's many yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And so, uh, yeah, we talked about that problem, and it just happened to play a game and had the same uh, epiphany at the same time. J James, have you played uh, uh, Fantasy Realms? I have not. No. Yeah, okay. But you played Red Rising now, right? So, I haven't played Red Rising. Played Red Rising. I've, watched, okay. I've watched your videos. <laughs> yeah. Well, the key, Red, uh, Fantasy Realms is a, is a very simple game, great game, where the, the core concept is you start out with a random hand of cards and you're trying yeah. to craft that hand of cards over the course of the game by putting, get, giving, getting rid of a card, adding a card to your hand so mm -hmm. that you get as many points in a handful of combos at the end of your, your game. What's the significance of the number seven? So you've got your kind of your end game trigger um, where uh, I believe if you hit like uh, seven helium or if your influence in the Institute hits seven or if there's seven spots on the, um, the fleet track, why seven? What's the significance of seven? Maybe Alex will have a better thematic answer than I do. There's no real <laughs> thematic reason for it. Well, I thought there was um, something in the book, maybe. I haven't read the books either, so I'm thinking, oh, maybe there's something in the book around seven. Yeah. That's why they picked that. I guess so, seven is half of 14, so kind of. But oh, the, the mechanical <laughs> reason is that, uh, and originally your hand size was seven cards too. That was too many. Mm -hmm. But I like having, in games mechanically, I like having the same number repeated throughout the game because it gives players less to remember. If yeah. there's a sweet spot number like that, they don't have to remember that helium is eight, and influence or institute is is six. It's just easy to remember if it's a, if it's parallel and symmetrical. There, Alex, did you have a, a better answer than that? No, it's 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 actually it's fantasy realms. Um, oh, it so is ironically, realms yeah. the, the hand size is not is uh, seven in fantasy realms. That's and true. so, just for our first play test, we threw the hand size at seven, and so we put everything else at seven too. That's and right. then, ironically, yeah. seven worked for everything except for the hand size. <laughs> yeah, that's a better way of putting it. I like that. Yeah. Now, when you have a license like this. Um, did you have to take the game then back to the author and say, kind of here's here here's what we're looking at doing, or like did they do they have to sign off, or how does that relationship work? Yeah, the, the I wanted to put as little pressure on Pierce as possible, and so yeah. I kind of just said uh, I, I got his permission to try to design the game, and yeah. I got the permission several times because I I failed these multiple times. I, I even went to, back to him after I failed, and I said, you know, I I can't figure it out. I'm sorry. I, I wish I could have. And then I came back to him a year later and said, I figured it out now. Can we still, can we still do this? And uh, there was, he was very interested. He was worried about the rights to get at that point because the rights had gotten, I think were again associated with film and TV uh, possibilities yeah. for him, which I was excited about. Um, but uh, he kind of gave the, the tepid go ahead and he said, we'll work around the rights. We'll figure that out. And eventually we did. That was probably the, the part that was the most difficult that took the longest, just getting through to lawyers. And I think that was influenced by COVID as well. There's yeah. a lot of stuff happening last year and uh, we finally got through. And so my contact with Pierce, I, I've tried to really respect his time and only approach him at key moments. Like I approached him when we had the box art mm -hmm. and I said, is this, does this work for you? Um, I did send him an early, I sent him an early prototype of the game and some early prototypes of the art just to make sure that they, they worked for him. Uh, but that, that was it. I, I tried to, I, I would have given him, if he wanted to play test the game every day, I would have done that for him, but he didn't want that. He wanted just a few little points of contact. Yeah, I can understand that. He's got to be busy. And I mean, yeah. if the story is as compelling as I'm seeing online, because I mean, there's review channels, not just obviously on, I mean, anybody goes on YouTube, you're going to see reviews of Red Rising playthroughs and so forth. But there's actually 
people that are doing reviews on the books, right? There's right. people that are actually doing dedicated videos just on the books and the stories and doing reviews on that. So there's clearly this cult following. And typically when you see that is going to end up eventually into some kind of either Netflix show, HBO show, maybe movie series. So I'm sure that's all coming. So it's, it's gotta be pretty cool to be on the front end of that instead of coming with your game after the properties already been launched in that medium, I'd say. Well, and that was a, yeah, I, I really do love this novel series. I want yeah. it to, I want anyone who loves science fiction, dystopian science fiction to read it. And so that was a huge motivation for me wanting to make this game. I wanted to share it with our audience. I wanted to share Red Rising with gamers and I wanted to share the awesome world of, of hobby gaming with Red Rising fans who maybe weren't yet modern hobby gamers. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm sharing the screen it. right now for the people that are watching live. There is a, um, is the, the, the two games side by each where we've got on, on the left side, we've got the, the retail version on the right side. We've got the, I get, what do you call it? I guess the premium version or the, the, the collector's, collector's edition. edition. Collector's yeah, edition. Yeah. So the strategy here is, as if, if people are doing kind of early, because you've now moved away from Kickstarter, you've obviously got a, a quite the pedigree on Kickstarter, but now Stonemeyer goes direct to consumer. And, uh, but you're still taking some of that kind of exclusivity model, right? To, uh, with, with your launches where you'll have, you know, your collector's edition, and then that's going to give you something better, more special than something somebody was going to find if they just go buy it on shelf. Right. Is that, is that fair to say? That's, that's, that's roughly the idea. Yeah. I wouldn't call it an exclusive because it, it's available to anybody who wants to buy it at any time. Sure. Um, but yeah, we wanted to offer, it's something that we haven't really done in a while, but I figured that there were going to be Red Rising fans who wanted something pretty to sit on their shelf. They wanted to, yeah. to say collector's edition, have an individual number on the, on the box saying this is, you know, copy uh, 1500 out of, out of 25,000, however many we made 20,000. Um, I, I wanted to cater to that audience. And we found that people do, if they are pre-ordering something, they generally like something special. They want to get a special reward for that. So we thought we did that, but at the same time, we knew that there was a lot of people, we wanted it to be appealing to people who walked into a retail store or wanted yeah. to buy it on Amazon or Target or anywhere around the world at an appealing retail price. And so uh, we, we, are, we were able to keep that price pretty low at $40 uh, to appeal to, to hopefully a broader audience who isn't used to spending $60, $65 on a board game. Yeah. So basically your Kickstarter audience, which are the guys that are spending the, the big box in the games versus people that go to your local store and buy it. Um, I didn't actually catch that. So I went through all the details. I didn't catch. So you actually numbered those boxes. Did you? So you'll have like a one of X number or? Yeah. Yeah. All of the, the collector's editions are individually numbered. That's something we do fairly often for the first printing of our games, even if they're not collector's editions, just yeah. because it's, it's a tiny cost to add to the game, but it adds that, that unique feel to it. Yeah. We like to do that. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I mean, so is that on the, that's on the outside of the box, is it? Yeah, it's on the, on the front of the box. There's a special stamping machine that just stamps out a number on the, on the front of every box that we make. Got it. Almost like a best yeah. before kind of stamp if you'd have like, yeah. in, I guess, <laughs> a food world and so forth. That's cool. And that would certainly, I think, increase the collectability. How was the weight difference between the two? Because there's a lot of metal in this, uh, this yeah. collector's edition, right? Yeah, I don't know the exact kilogram difference offhand. It's a, it's a few... Uh, it's a, it's a fraction of a kilogram, but there, there, there's a weight difference. It's not a huge, it's not enough to really impact shipping. All the, Alex, you know better than I do with the shipping. Right. I think it's, um, so wingspan is about the same size and heavier than both of them. Yeah. Uh, okay. But it's, it's so it's a big difference, but uh, most shipping is done. Um, there's a volumetric weight. Essentially, okay. if a box is a certain size, it doesn't matter if it's any weight up to a certain weight, it's all the same price. Mm. Um, and I believe they both fall in the same price, actually. And then the solo version. So it comes with the auto, 
Automa deck, I guess. Mm-hmm. Auto- called Automa? Is that the name of it? Autom- oh, I say Automa. I think they might. Yeah, we'll call it Automa. I'm Canadian. I'll say Automa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so Automa Factory. So this is something that's gone across a, a number of your games now. Where Can you talk a little bit about what that is for people that might not know? Yeah, the, the, I guess the brief backstory is we had, when I ran my original Viticulture Kickstarter campaign in 2012, I had a volunteer, random guy from Denmark, showed up on the campaign and started talking about solo game design. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. I, I've never played a game solo. I didn't know people yeah. did that. And Morton ended up uh, being such a great volunteer for the company, this guy Morton in Denmark, that he uh, designed a solo mode for Viticulture that we put in Tuscany in 2014. And it was received very well. And I was kind of exposed to the, uh, the wonderful solo community of gamers. And from then on, for most of our games, Morton has, he, this has become his full-time job where he runs a, runs a company called Automa Factory. And they make solo versions, mostly for our games. But every now and then he gets an offer from another company. He did one for Gaia Project, yeah. uh, where he's really excited about working on that game. And, and he does that too. But this is a, it's a full-time job for him just to do this and coordinate this for our games and our expansions. And it's more than just, uh, you know, having something kind of, you know, help move the pieces automatically. Like they actually design these to actually almost act like an artificial intelligence, right? So when you're playing it, it actually feels like you're playing with other players. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's his goal for everyone. He wants it to feel like you're playing against someone else, else without the maintenance of actually running all the stuff that you need to do for a human player. So there's, I mean, I think we see the spectrum of, of those things within solo mode. There, there are solo modes where you're just trying to beat a score. That's like the simplest version. Yep. There are complex versions where you are doing everything that another player would do. And that's, I understand why some games do that, but it's a lot. And so Morton kind of hits the sweet spot, I think, in the middle of, of simulating that without giving you all the work that you have to do to run a second player. Certainly, I think now more than ever, solo play, I think, is needed with games, right? So with COVID, a lot of people who maybe were used to going to game nights, right? Going to a local pub or whatever to, you know, to socialize with people, but maybe lived alone. Also, now they're trapped in their houses and with all these games, you know, I think it for publishers has probably opened a lot of people's eyes to say, you know, going forward, we need to try to integrate this as much as we can. So it's cool to see you guys have done this. Another thing I saw in this campaign was there was, I think it was like $15 people save if they're part of your uh, champion program. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the champion program is? I've been talking a lot, Alex. Do you want to give the, the overview <laughs> of that? <laughs> um, so, so champion, the champion program um, started specifically as a way for people to support the content that Jamie makes um, on his his blog, um, whether it's a and then his YouTube channel as well. Uh, so, Kickstarter, uh, like discussion about Kickstarters, um, just anything else that uh, Jamie happens to be talking about, um, and then. Um, but at the same time, like as they're supporting that, um, we wanted a way to give back to them. Um, so, so uh, Jamie came up with this idea of, well, what what if we give people a discount on our web store from buying directly from us? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, right now, uh, they it's a twenty five percent discount on um, our any order you place from our store um, with this annual annual fee to to keep it up. So for Oftentimes, for our more, especially if you're buying one of our more expensive games, it's actually cheaper to sign up as a champion and then buy the game than it would be to just buy it without being a champion. Yeah, it's kind of like Indigo, right? When you're when you when you go to Indigo to get a book and they say, "Hey, are you are you a member?" and you say, mm-hmm. "Well, no, I'll, no, I'm not sure." And they're like, "Well, if you sign up today, you're actually going to get this book even cheaper with the cost." of the right. membership ends up being cheaper than if you're just buying this book on its own. So it's almost like a no brainer. 
you guys have a ton of titles coming out and a lot of demand around your titles. Um, it makes sense that, you know, there's probably going to be at least one game a year. Somebody's going to be buying off you guys. So um, for your fan base is a great way to kind of give back. What's next up for you guys. So this is red rising. There's a lot of excitement around this game. Is there like, what's kind of coming down the pipe for you guys next? Well, yeah, our 2021 so far has been Red Rising, and then we had the Between Two Castles expansion, Secrets yeah. and Soirees, that came out a, about a month or so later. I think the retail release is coming up really soon. Next week, Alex? It's, uh, next week, yes. Yeah, July 16th. And then um, and then we have a, a game that I designed at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all truly self-isolating and truly stuck at home. Um, I designed a game called Rolling Realms, which is an infinitely scaling roll and write game. And I, I wasn't designing it to actually publish it. I was just thinking I, I want to do something to, to play games with people uh, live on, on streaming like this or Facebook yep. Live. And it ended up being a lot of fun to play. I was kind of surprised by how, how much fun it was to play. And so we ended up publishing a version of it, or we will be publishing a version of it that will come out in a few months. We'll have the pre-order in a few months. So that'll oh, be awesome. kind of a, a tabletop version of, of uh, a roll and write game. It's cool to hear those stories from people that uh, I think the pandemic has been um, obviously... Uh, you know, inconvenient to say the least for a lot of people, but I think there's some things that have come out of it. Right. And uh, I I think we see the industry as a whole um, starting to adjust and shift and, you know, kind of recalibrate itself kind of to the new normal. And uh, when you hear stories of um, things like more publishers coming with solo versions of their games or, you know, publishers that are creating things out of boredom or creating things out of a way to connect with people. And there's been several stories of that this year of people just creating something during the pandemic not with any intention to publish, but just to, to connect with people and then end up kind of landing on something that's uh, truly special. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. I think yeah. it's pretty cool indeed. Mm-hmm. So I definitely want to thank you guys so much for coming on this podcast. I know you guys are very busy. There's a lot of exciting things coming out of Stonemaier Games. Uh, so finally, if people want to learn more about any of your games, how best do they do that? I mean, the hub for everything that we do is at StoneMeyerGames.com. They can go there to, to read the blog about crowdfunding, to learn about our games that links to our web store. Um, they, can, they can come here to, to learn about game design on my YouTube channel. I post about games on Instagram. I do a lot of like the outward social posting. Yeah. Uh, someone like Alex is a lot more behind the scenes. But if you're a retailer, a library, a distributor, and you're interested in carrying our games, you can reach out to Alex directly. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, oh, that's on our website as well. And you do weekly uh, live Q and A's as well, right? So if there's I do anybody you want yeah. to, if you want to reach out to Jamie and you've got a question, uh, join in on his weekly Q and A, uh, and you know he'll maybe he'll answer one of your questions if you shoot it over to him. So, gentlemen, yeah. thanks again. Wish you all the best this coming year. You take care. Cheers. Thanks, James. You too. Thank you so much. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.